Hey, you're listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast, episode 36, and today I'm chatting with Miguel Atwood Ferguson. Again, I'm talking to you about my Patreon account. Just before we carry on with the rest of the podcast, I'd just like to let you know that this podcast is funded fully on Patreon. Uh, it's a Patreon is a way for you as the listener to help me out. And you don't have to do it. This, is, this podcast will always be free, and it has always been free. But if you feel like the Jazz Violin podcast is like an integral part of your month, like you're waiting for it every month. It's like, when's it coming out? I'm so excited to hear Matt talk nonsense to a master of the violin. Then I implore you, please check it out. A little bit of money. You can give me as little as one pound, one dollar, one euro a month, whatever you want. Also, if you are in the middle of learning how to play jazz violin, I offer these group lessons every week which you can also check out on Patreon as well. It's a way that we practice together. But anyway, I'm going to stop the hard sell now. Um, I'm super excited about chatting today to my guest, Miguel Atwood Ferguson. He has played with and arranged for and orchestrated for like the who's who his of, of music. If you look at his discography and his biography, he has like the, he has the track record of like a, someone who's like a hundred years old. He's played with absolutely everybody from Ray Charles to Madlib to Robert Glasper to Hiatus Coyote. And ah oh man, you know, I'm not going to list them all because it's too long, but this guy is an inspiration. He's a wonderful guy and a wonderful player. Please give it up for Miguel Atwood Ferguson. I'm all right, basically. I'm all right. Good. Just... I'm happy to hear that. How about you? I'm well, thank you. Yeah. yeah? Working hard on my album and taking care of my 10 months old son and yeah. uh, trying to be the best partner to my fiance and ah, just being okay. safe. And uh, because we've, um, as a country, bungled so many things, uh, definitely including um, the handling of this pandemic, where um, we have the reality that we have because of that, in my opinion. And uh, so, yeah, just trying to be very safe over here. I rarely uh, leave my, my house, uh, except, to, to go on a very nice walk every morning, uh, with my son strapped to my chest on a nice harness that I have. And so I'm usually, if I'm going alone, I, I'm working on my album via, you know, some earbuds and just making mental notes on mixes and thinking about what I want to do with these recordings. And, and then I probably go to the post office once a week and, that's about it. So we're 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 pretty conservative uh, how we're approaching or treating this uh, pandemic. That's that sounds that's sounds similar to me, but I don't have a ten months old. I, I, I yet to be a father, but you're a new father, right? It's quite a nice time to be a new yeah. father. 
because yeah. you are you are just in all the time, right? Yes, yes. So we could we lucked out, you know, Matt. Um, I used to be. I'm somebody that that is probably average 16 hour work days uh, doing stuff I love with music. Um, I probably average like 12 to 16 hours every single day for the, at least the last 10 years. Yeah. And I love it. I'm not a workaholic. Um, I, I just love it. And I love spending time like cooking and, and going out hanging with friends. But I, I just love what I do with my music. And it's so cathartic and spiritual for me. It's meditative. Um, and so when I had Sebastian, my 10-month-old, I, I said, okay, well, I'm just not, when he, when he arrives, um, I'm just not going to tour uh, as much. And instead of working, you know, I've had 22 hour work days, you know, a couple of those in the last couple of years. But instead of working so much, I'll just dial it back a little bit. But I did not plan for a global pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so it's been a little bit challenging, but mm-hmm. it hasn't been horrible. And, uh, my amazing fiance is the CEO of her own startup. So she's also very busy. Um, and we don't have family available to help us uh, babysit. So it has been quite challenging, but it's all working out. And I'm just thankful. You know, it's yeah. like you can, you can only prepare so much, right? For, yeah. for life, it's uh, all the more reason, I think, to do the things that we can do. Mm to influence the things that we care about yeah because you know perhaps it's fair to say that we're not promised anything and yeah uh, yeah it's true for me you know just just on this subject one of the positives of the the global pandemic has been actually not being in charge of my own uh not fate my my own uh what i'm up to you know it's not up to me anymore and and i think there's i don't think i'd speaking just for myself there i think a lot of musicians and creative types have probably enjoyed that you know everything's just been taken away you don't it's not really up to you whether you're going to be gigging next year or or if you're going to be gigging next week it's not up to you at all and and, you know you can get so as a full-time self-employed whatever you can you know it's all on you you know and i think it's been quite nice to have that taken away a little bit i don't know about if that rings true for you yeah yeah i i always like a good ass whooping yeah um i don't like to i don't administer ass whoopings i like to <laughs> uh i'm not looking for them but uh when they are given to me i do appreciate how i become more humble yeah and i become I think more focused and more appreciative Mm. and I want to be somebody that's better at prioritizing and knowing how to excel at time management. Okay. So hardship can sometimes help. Sometimes. Yeah. I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. I was going to basically start a little bit about, just chat asking you about how you um just how you first started playing how you first found music how or how it found you and um just go from the start really when did you first start you know becoming a musician yeah well my dad uh who's still with us uh he's 70 years old uh is a fantastic uh musician and my mother 
really appreciated music as well. And so I grew up in this household that was always playing recordings. And my dad was a genius, uh, really virtuosic pianist that was uh, classically trained, but specialized um, in some other styles um, like folk um, and uh, what sort of folk? Early, early jazz, um, Americana type of folk from the mid 19th century to kind of like early 20th century. And uh, he really likes country music and Motown, American Motown music. And he has maybe about 10 to 12,000 CDs. And so I grew up just with this really rich, uh, luxuriously rich experience of um, being able to appreciate good music from all around the world, spanning hundreds of years. You know, Bach was my first person that I was obsessed with in, in the realm of music. And then it went into like Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Wonder. And then I got into hip hop. Uh, and then in high school, I became obsessed with jazz. And to this day, you know, if I had to pick a favorite genre, I would probably say jazz music. Um, but I study music from all around the world. And I still um, have this really deep love affair with uh, European classical music. I practice Bach almost every day. And I study scores almost every day. And so growing up in this house, um, in nature too. I grew up in a place called Topanga Canyon, which is a really beautiful place in Los Angeles. It's in the hills um, right near a state park. And so from early age, Matt, I would go to the state park even by myself and just connect with nature. And, and it, was a, it was a spiritual experience for me as a kid. And both my parents have, um, they're kind of um, insular people that aren't really so socializing a lot. And so we were we had beautiful interactions with people, but my, my point being is that I had the available time and space to do something like that. And so having this um, foundation of having connected with all these different cultures and styles of music for me has been something that I'm so grateful for and something that has uh, fed everything that I do. And it's something that I really uh, appreciate. So the way I feel towards John Coltrane, um, even though he's probably my favorite all-time artist, um, or at least modern artist, uh, I have a similar respect um, for Jimi Hendrix or you know Stevie Wonder or Bach or Maurice Ravel um, or you know Herbie Hancock or uh, so I've I've learned how to respect equally people regardless if they know how to read music or whether they studied music to me it's just how how moving is it and so there's another way to explain it is um i was raised in a way to um they weren't my parents weren't trying to teach me this it was just i kind of just gathered this um from all this these amazing recordings that i was hearing um the emotion you know maurice Ravel has a quote about um, when it comes to music, uh, he says emotion first, intellect second. And that type of philosophy, I think I just 
naturally gravitated to um, towards. So I I love studying. I love reading. I love analyzing. I love um, learning as much as I possibly can um, in as many different ways as possible. But I keep on coming back to this um, philosophy of respecting emotion first. And I think there's something transcendent about that. Um, I love trying to train my brain to support emotion. So I'm so thankful for my brain. I'm so thankful for the ability to, to think and to self-reflect and to be able to utilize uh, intelligence and such things as, you know, a fact. Um, and uh, I really try to do, this, do that as much as possible, but I do it to serve good feelings and like my optimal health. And my life started to really take a positive turn, Matt, in like around when I was 18, 19, a freshman at college. I was always a relatively nice person, a very nice person and supportive of the people around me. But after the first semester at college, I, um, I became very depressed. And I had depression growing up, too, but it came to a head uh, when I was a, a freshman um, in college. And I actually almost committed suicide. It was so bad. And um, at that time, I, I had like a rebirth. Um, and... As part of my rebirth, I started realizing that it wasn't something that I wanted to broadcast, um, but in my heart, I had this intention that, you know what, um, I actually really love the world, and I really care about the world, and I really want to have um, something uh, that's a part of my life and part of the music that I make that can be empowering uh, and encouraging to people. And that became this, I didn't tell people about it, but that was what became this like burning, uh, intention. And I didn't want it to be overt, but that was something that was embedded in the, the metadata of the vibrations of what I was doing. And it really helped me get out of my depression. Um, it really helped me feel less alienated and feel connected. And that's really when my playing started taking off and my career started taking off. And to this day, it's something that I, I think is one of the main reasons why I've been able to have a good career. And wow. because it's not just about, I've never been like such a talented musician, in my opinion. Um, I'm certainly even though the viola and the violin are my two main instruments, I don't think I'm a particularly good violinist or violist. Um, I don't think I'm shitty. I mean, my intonation is definitely horribly shitty sometimes, or a lot of the time. Tell uh, me about my, it, man. My rhythm is very suspect and <laughs> um, quite a lot. Um, but I think um, some of my strong points have thankfully outweighed uh, some of those weaknesses. And um, I think that's something that's beautiful with us artists. Yeah. Like we don't have to be the best at something to still be able to have a career 
or yeah, be able man. to have worth. I totally, I totally agree. And what is, I guess, liberating for, for violinists? I, I think it's just you know the world of the world of classical music. If you want to make it in classical music, it does have that that uh, that thing of, you know, if you if if you can't play your thirds absolutely perfectly in tune, you're not even going to get a lesson with this teacher who's going to take you to the next level who will take you to this to the next level and then you'll you know and maybe then you'll be a maybe then you'll do some you know a little bit of uh you know soloist stuff that's not how it works with everything else and 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 pretty much everything else other than western classical music as a jazz player as someone who plays jazz if you have the what you're talking about the emotion and you're able to to uh to expend that emotion through your music, then a lot of the time, that's all that matters. You seem like you've always adopted all music, which, you know, from a really young age, which is, which is just not, it's just not something that, that everybody, it doesn't. It's not in everyone's wheelhouse, I think is also what you're saying. Uh, yeah, it doesn't happen to everybody. Most people, you know, a lot of people that get into music through, through education often, right? Like through formal education, you know, maybe they got into playing the violin because somebody came around their school and said, hey, I'm doing violin lessons or hey, I'm doing recorder lessons. And you get into music through that way. And you don't get, you know, you don't always get the broadest overview that way, really, because it's all so focused and also quick. But it seems like you had a really sort of open uh, education from, from, from an early age about all the different all the different things that are out there you know i'm reading your uh, reading your biography earlier today and you've got you know your your influences are they span everything all music you know listen seeing some you know el subram what's he called el subram oh yeah he's my favorite el subraman man yeah, yeah i forget how to say his name but yeah it's uh, you know from from him to i don't know yeah to the beatles you know all this stuff and i think that that is you know that's not normal not everybody gets not everybody has that mm -hmm. some people a lot of people they have to find that and they and they make that um connection to the violin or their instrument like 10 years 20 years down the line so that's uh yeah i guess yeah it's uh that, that i guess that's it must be where that comes from you know that that openness mm -hmm. mm. Mm. but um it also just strikes me just one one more thing about what you just said you know when you're talking about when you were a uh, sort of late teenager, 18, 19, and you were going through this depression. And you managed to come out of that with, uh, you know, it just strikes me because I think about myself when I was 18 and I didn't have that self-awareness. I wasn't able to, I wouldn't be able to think so deeply about what I want to do or what I can give or what, you know, what I can't give. And it's, it's, it's quite... I'm always really uh, taken aback when I meet people who, who from an early age, they they know what they they know what they can give, or, or they know what they, you know, and they and people who are so self aware at such a young age, basically, it's it, it's quite it's quite amazing. Mm. Well, I came really close to almost ending my life, but I didn't. I was trying to not end my life. I didn't want to end my life, but that's how bleak life looked at, uh, to me at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I was literally contemplating what I was perceiving 
as the path of life and the path of death. And hmm. I, I was ready to end my life. And I had a plan, but I was still trying to think of reasons not to end my life because I, I thought that even though at that time I wasn't seeing the possibility of how I could live the life that I wanted, I, I, uh, from a, an emotional place, I thought there must be uh, a way that I'm not seeing. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, I didn't end my life. And thankfully, I did find that path uh, for me that opened up the, the possibilities um, to potentially manifest the things that I wanted to manifest for myself and have the type of um, vibrational, emotional presence that I wanted to have in the world because I believed in the seeds that I wanted to plant regardless of the outcome of whatever influence I could have. So my point, though, that I'm trying to get to is that I wasn't so certain about anything other than uh, I believe that I made a promise with myself that if I was going to end my life, I was going to give my life 100%, which I felt like up until that point, at most, I was giving it like 90% or something. Um, and I didn't feel like it was fair for me to end my life um, if I hadn't like really for years and years given given it all that I possibly could and see what life would look like if I had done that. Um, so give my life like more than 100%. And then like I said earlier, um, empower and encourage, um, have an empowering and encouraging impact, um, like an unspoken one, not one with like, big, you know, pomp and circumstance, um, but just, you know, quietly just try to benefit, um, Mm. at least attempt to benefit society. Uh, and so that much I was confident with. And so I, I knew that I wanted to be in music, but I didn't, I wasn't certain all the things that I, I wanted. I really liked composing. I've been composing, since like age eight, something like that, age seven, uh, had my first symphonic piece play when I was 10 hmm. um, and uh, wrote a lot of music for my high school orchestra. And I really liked the feeling of composing. And that's really what I see myself mostly as is, is a composer. And I'm not complaining, but I'm saying that I've gotten a little bit sidetracked in my opinion, which maybe is a blessing but just trying to make a living, I've been able to make a living more as an arranger, um, violinist that travels the world, now starting to play more and leading my own ensembles. Um, so my point is, I think that we can piggyback off of points of clarity. And that's, I think we have to be kind of like detectives in our own life even if we have, even if we come from a very emotionally balanced family and are blessed to have, to be a part of various communities that have like a lot of warmth and, and a lot of like nurturing aspects, I still think we have to, if we want to be our happiest and healthiest and go the furthest with our life and our artistry, I think we have to be somewhat of a detective sometimes. And 
And also, uh, Oscar Wilde puts it this way. He says, you know, loving yourself is always like the beginning of a lifelong romance. It's like we have to kind of romance ourselves, and we're kind of dancing with ourselves in a way to, I think, celebrate, you know, who we are. And it, it seems to me, Matt, that we often don't realize how much more special we are than we actually are. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning, I think that we all have a lot more inside of us than we're aware of. And the only way to manifest that is to dive in and just get messy and get dirty um, and to engage, to, to engage ourselves. And I, uh, I think we have a finite uh, body and, and lifetime, but I think we're part of this infinite energy. And I don't think there's any limit to how much we can explore and expand and, and manifest via going inwards and discovering what interests us. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's very, you know, it's very inspiring to me to hear somebody like yourself who has dealt with, you know, depression in their life and managed to come out of it and make something good from it it's really like super inspiring to me so thank you and i I think that should be inspiring i'm sure that's inspired inspiring to everybody but yeah certainly to me very uh very very inspiring and what is it you get from music what is it that you want to do with your music what what would you say your your goal is like your end result when you're the happiest with your music Mm. anything you know anything you're playing or your or your composition what's your goal yeah, well, I'm a crazy idealistic person. Uh, my goal is world peace. What that means to me uh, is a lot of different things, but one way in reality, being the most realistic I possibly can, my immediate goal is to empower people with my music, starting with myself. So I feel like if I'm making the music that I most want to make, it's going to involve the most authenticity possible, the most honesty possible. And it seems to me, Matt, that the more, the, and I think authenticity, authenticity and honesty are infinite pursuits. So I used to think that honesty was either black or white, either someone was being honest or not. And now, I mean, maybe there's a time where that's the case, but I think more times than not, I think uh, subjects like honesty and authenticity are completely infinite. There's no, there's no limit to, uh, and it has, I'm not coming from like a moral place. I'm just talking about more of like an actuality type of um, approach where, and it's based upon my opinion that we're actually infinite. Uh, who who we are is, in my opinion, I, I think we're like a, a well that that has no end to it, um, and we have uh, this vehicle of a finite body. Um, but it seems to me like we're the ones that set the limits with actually what we're able to manifest, or at least we have a huge influence and say with 
um, how we get to experience our, our whole life. And so, yeah, my, my whole thing is just trying to open up and enjoy the process of uh, opening up my authenticity and my connection with my own feelings and then learning how to take more responsibility for my own feelings. And that was one of the most tangible things I was able, being putting on my detective hat, I was able to figure out, okay, well, why am I depressed? And, you know, a lot of people talk about depression like it's something that happens. It's like they catch like a cold or something. And maybe that does happen to certain people, not me. And so for me, um, I, I was able to trace my depression back to like my own actions and decisions. And yes, uh, some of it runs in my family, but I just had this intuitive feeling like I'm not a victim and it's coming from a place of love, self-love that I wanted to learn how to take responsibility for that. And so in doing that, it's become such a joyous thing to free myself um, from my own unconsciously self-imposed prison uh, that it's been really fun for me to share the fruits of my labors with other people, even if it's just unspoken. And even yeah. if it's just vibrationally, all that stuff's in my music. And so in a sense, you could say that my goal is to create liberation music. That's and, amazing. I really liberation music, I mean, that could be any genre. Yeah. You know, so Well, you know what's interesting is I just when I was checking out some of your recordings, I uh I you know, I I was just I always do that with with guests. I was just just before I'll have a little listen to all the stuff that you know that I can find on them. And suddenly I was I had my violin and I was just playing. So I think you, I think you did it, man. You, at least you did it to me. You, you did, you know. And that, that doesn't happen that often, actually. You know, I don't think that does. Uh, I mean, it, it does with wow. thing. But usually, I'll listen. You know, I'll go, okay, right, okay. So this, uh, you know, this they do this, they do this. That's interesting, and maybe I'll ask this. But suddenly, I was just like, hey, playing. All right. Oh, yeah, nice. so, there that you go. You, hopefully that. Hopefully that. Uh, that. I think that means that you're doing the right thing. Well, at least at least for me, anyway. That's great. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know what I what I really enjoy about everything that you do is the fact that there there really doesn't seem to be any uh, any borders in what you do. You don't seem to, and and it, and it seems like that's the sort of musician you are. You don't see, and actually, you've already said that. You know you respect Bach in the same way that you respect, you know, the, the, the guy playing honky tonk piano and, right. and, uh, you know, as long as there's emotion there. And I think that that, you know, when I look at your, you know, man, I look at your, uh, look at your biography or your discography and it's got everybody. There's everything, all music, so many different styles. And I see that and I'm, I'm impressed because, often people stick with one thing, you know, people, and I, I'd say that with myself in a way, you know, you're like, all right, I'm a jazz violinist and that's what I do. And then you just do your jazz. I'm attracted to that. And part of me wishes I was more like you in that way. 
Well, okay, but it, it, that that that's that's interesting to hear. But you know what's interesting to hear is it, we always do that, though, don't we? We always think actually maybe I should have done that. The grass is greener. You don't even think the grass is greener, but you look and you go, oh, that's that's not what I did. I did something else. Maybe hmm. you think you know, but. But you know you've you've stuck you've stuck with that. There's you know you've done so much. How one question I have for you actually is: Do you get a different feeling from when you're improvising and performing to when you are composing or arranging or orchestrating? Yeah, yeah. I have horrible stage fright. Do you? Right. Yeah, but only when I'm performing classical music. Oh man. So do I. I mean, I yeah, I I would. And sure. I love classical. When I say classical, I mean European classical music, because um, obviously there's classical music from every culture. So yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, I still enjoy performing European classical music, and I plan to do it more. But I don't want to have a career doing that. Um, yeah. And mind you, I have an intense love and passion for that music. I yeah. absolutely, absolutely love it. There's something with improvising, which, by the way, have you heard the etymology of that word improvisation? No. Etymology is such a fascinating subject. I got into it a couple of years ago, and it's something that I can't wait to study more, but improvisation matt was just like one of it might take the cake it might be the one of the coolest words as far as etymology so there's two kind of like root definitions uh that i find very interesting one my favorite one is to reveal the unseen that's the etymology of improvisation that's one of the when you go back as far as when I went when I went back as far as I could trace it, like to Latin and like the uh, I guess improvisare might be right. the Italian, but at, when I went as far deep as I could, um, tracing it back to when it first started to become a concept and a word uh, in cultures um, to reveal the unseen. And then another one that's interesting, and and obviously these are translations of translation of translation. So it's amazing, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so when we translate something, I think we have to keep in mind that it has very different meanings in a different language yeah. because of all the, uh, the the things that are intimated from that culture, you know, words mean different things to different people for yeah. good reasons. And so, you know, I, I, I don't take this stuff too seriously. Um, and it's not entirely correct because of the translations, but sure. the other, the other one that I, I kind of find is interesting, uh, is, uh, root definition of improvisation is to improve upon the moment. Whoa. And that clearly seems like it's translated in so many different ways, many times over. But that's an interesting, you know, concept. You know, some people might say, 
well, there's no need to improve upon the moment. We just, you know, need to surrender to, you know, the divine dignity of every moment, celebrate it. But, you know, I think, I think you get the beauty of it though also. And I think uh, your listeners will too, uh, to improve upon the moment, you know? And so I have stage fright when I feel like I can't improve upon the moment. So when I get to improvise, I get to, I, I think that's why I don't have a uh, stage fright when I'm playing improvisatory music because I get to <coughs> celebrate the moment however the hell I want to. Yeah. 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 And you know, when I do see, when I have seen your improv stuff, it's all very, um, it's, I don't want to, I don't want to say free. I don't want to put it in the free bracket as in the free jazz bracket, but there's a lot, there's a much more free element to that of like someone who just rinses off like loads of bebop stuff. I think I saw you, I saw you, I saw a video of you playing like jamming with hiatus coyote. And I was, you know, as a musician, you put your, you always put yourself in the, the, the other, you know, especially I look at violinists. I'm like, you know, what would I be doing there? And I knew that I would just be going, whatever, but you come up with some stuff that I would just would, never have played and it was you know it was it was uh it was melodic but it was it was really interesting to hear that and it does seem like that you know yeah i don't know it's uh, i it's really exciting to hear people um who do play out with uh out you know who sort of stay out of genres so much don't stick with one genre and because i've worked on that too right okay yeah. Uh, well, thank you for saying that. Uh, that moment you were talking about with hiatus, that was just uh, an improvised thing. It was completely yeah. open. And, you know, Bill Evans, who is one of my favorite, not the saxophonist, but the uh, the celebrated pianist, uh, composer, yeah. band leader, who, by the way, played flute in college. A lot of people really? don't know that. Um, I think even Piccolo too. Uh, and in the army band, I think he actually played flute, but he, uh, he has a bunch of interesting quotes. And one of them is from a fantastic, uh, video that's up on YouTube, uh, where he's playing, it's a black and white, uh, video from 1970 in, um, Finland. And he's playing with Eddie Gomez. Um, Mm. I forget who the drummer was at that time. Uh, and they're just playing like a salon concert in someone's uh, beautiful house, and they interview him too. And I, if you haven't seen, I really recommend checking it out. It's just they they play like maybe three songs and uh, interview him. And is it um, is it his process? Is it the one where he's talking about his 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 process? And this, uh, it might be that. He definitely talks about a lot of aspects of his process. Um, he has Bill has a famous video called like Universal Mind uh, with his brother, uh, who was an educator um, from like nineteen. I think the video is from like nineteen sixty six. Some right. sometime between sixty four and sixty six. So that's that video is a little bit more um, famous. But this in this nineteen seventy uh, Finland thing, um, he has a quote that I think is very interesting when he's talking about free avant-garde music and 
he, I'm paraphrasing him, but he says a couple points that I think are really important, and I, I, I agree with them. Uh, he's saying that he appreciates avant-garde free music, but he notices that he likes avant-garde music when the people have done more of their homework, basically. And you're saying that uh, when someone's playing avant-garde free music, if they haven't really, if they're not really, really responsible with what it is they're doing, Bill Evans says that they just sound like a crying baby. <laughs> and I thought that was humorous. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And so it's interesting, someone like me, um, because I have all these different uh, genres that I uh, grew up, not necessarily studying all of them, but like listening to them. Because um, I was really, only really seriously studying European classical music as a kid. And then in high school, I became a jazz fanatic and started really studying that. Um, and uh, But I'm, I'm not good enough, uh, in my opinion, um, currently to like really call myself uh, like a bona fide jazz musician. Um, I mean, I, I play jazz festivals uh, around the world. Uh, with my ensemble, but you know, I I love that music so much. It's like I can imagine a life where that's what I focus on, and I think I could be really good at it if I focused on it. But the amount of time it takes to write arrangements, like I do, yeah. and, um, it just it eats up so much time. And so it's like I'm just trying to be be honest. Um, but anyway, yeah, free music is something that I like a lot of, and I feel like I'm able to express myself maybe even best that way, uh, on the violin. Yeah. Uh, Cause when I'm soloing over my own music, it sounds so shitty sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> uh, sometimes I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that kind of sounds nice. Um, but some of the people that are hired to, to play my bands, I think they're some of the greatest musicians, um, jazz musicians in the world right now. And I would far more appreciate being able to hear them solo on my own music than what I'm able to do currently. So I, I'm very selective uh, with when I give myself a solo. Mm. Well, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I found that because I, I did, I just wanted to hear you play. I think I just, I, I don't know how I found that video, but I found that video and yeah, I just I was listening, and then there was a moment, and maybe if you maybe I'll send it to you, maybe you can, maybe you'll see what the moment is. There's a moment where I was just like, "Fucking hell, I would never have played that," and that is wicked. It was quite a classic. It did sound quite classical. I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to just rehash that moment, you know, in your life. But um, what uh, you know, how did you how do you go about? Let's just get back to actually how you how you went about getting into doing what you do now so you know yeah. a lot of what you do is writing and performing and putting together bands to perform or or uh, sections to perform with loads of different people you write you write arrangements and you you orchestrate things for you know so many different people uh, list is endless how did you go about getting into that like doing that for people yeah so the road for me was um, starting with weekly classical lessons while listening to all these other styles of music in the background. 
and being very dedicated classical uh, and then chamber music, um, going to a high school where uh, I played bass in the jazz band and viola uh, in the jazz band and uh, playing in, in the classical string orchestra at this school that was a world-class uh, youth string orchestra mm -hmm. um, and writing music for that ensemble and then going to college and getting a degree in classical viola but still listening to all this music and having this like deep love for jazz um, continue to blossom and starting to do sessions. You know, I live in Los Angeles, so there's you know, a pretty vibrant um, recording uh, industry here. And uh, so there's this developing ability to play my instrument and there's this developing sense of connecting my ears, my ability to listen with connecting with my humanity. And so my, cause so much of, in my opinion, having a career in anything, but in music, um, has to do with the ability, in my opinion, to be a team player. And that doesn't mean, letting people walk over us or just being a servant. But I think the best team players, Matt, know their own strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, Miles Davis has a cool quote where he talks about as a band leader, he wanted to get the best out of everyone in the group and maximize each of their strengths by letting both their strengths and their weaknesses be a strength for the music and for the band. And I feel that as team players, we try to do that as much as possible so that we can just be as helpful as possible and benefit the most people as much as we can, as consistently as we can. And... Yes, for sure, there's a place for the super aces sometimes that are not necessarily assholes, but we all know that uh, or have experienced being around some incredibly talented people that sometimes are also incredibly arrogant and total assholes. And they have a lot of worth too, and I really respect them. And also, to give them some credit, there's a reason, and not necessarily a bad reason sometimes why they're assholes. Um, and so I'm not trying to just judge them as being an asshole. Um, uh, I'm just trying to say that uh, in terms of what we're able to bring to the table, um, trying to benefit by like putting on the producer's hat. Uh, the more we can put on the producer's hat in any situation and try to benefit the whole while trying to have as much integritous authenticity as an individual as possible as well, that seems to uh, be, be a good um, way of going about things. And for me, that was the reason why I think I started from an early age, like in my 20s, one, right before I graduated college, 
uh, I was able to start having a, a pretty highly functioning uh, studio career. And so that, that was my uh, path was, you know, the classical European classical thing, but then kind of expanding other genres. And then that led to being a studio musician and teaching on the side. And then uh, my good buddy, Carlos Nino, who's a fantastic uh, radio host and producer and mentor to many people. Uh, he helped me connect with a lot of these uh, producers uh, like Mad Lib and Flying Lotus. And that started my recording career um, outside of the recording with people like Ray Charles um, and like Barry Manilow. Because uh, that was the studio world I was in. Yeah. Um, because my college professor had those uh, connections. And so, um, you know, word of mouth, I think, is very powerful. Yeah. And when I was graduating college, that um, the internet um, was huge by that time. But it was word of mouth, I think, was still more powerful at that time. So this is like before MySpace <laughs> and uh, before Facebook. Yeah. Um, and so Carlos helped me connect with these amazing producers. And that also helped me connect with my own like burning desire to realize, oh, you know what? I really do want to be a composer, not just uh, composing European classical music, but also um, composing songs and that combine different genres. And so then I was able to get out of this, this more, uh, commercial, um, studio trajectory. And I was starting to get more into this music director, um, arranger, solo artist trajectory. And so I just, I've been just building that and building that, um, quite a lot over the last, uh, 15 years. And now I'm at the point where I am trying to finish my first solo album. So I've played on about 500 albums um, for different people. And I have a couple unofficial uh, self-releases, mm -hmm. but nothing I would call like an official album. So now I'm really focusing on my first album and... Uh, um, I'm co-producing Thundercat's new uh, EP, which is an orchestral project, and I'm writing. Um, I've been trying to tell my friends Thundercat and um, Flying Lotus that I really want to do an orchestral project for them, and they finally said yes. Um, so we have a, a date at the Hollywood Bowl here in Los Angeles for Flying Lotus um, in September, I think it is. So they might... We had it set for last year, but then the pandemic hit. So... I have a feeling they might need to move the date again. And uh, I'll let you know, because we also had a date for Royal Albert Hall. Oh, uh, wicked. Uh, yeah, so I'll let you know um, Please when do. that happens. Yeah. Uh, so that'll be me on violin plus, you know, like a five-piece rhythm section of Lotuses and Lotus. And then uh, probably not a crazy big, some, I'm, I think I might want to keep it still kind of intimate, maybe like 36 players. Yeah. Um, 
yeah so that's one of the projects i'm working on mm. yeah hey how do you think you're uh, i'd like i'd just be interested to you know to know if you're arranging and uh, orchestrating changes in the same way that you know the the sort of playing of a of a jazz musician does in a way because i i'd say that it's a common a common theme when you're younger you're you know you're you're flat you like to be flashy you like you sh you show off all the as many notes as possible all the crazy stuff if that's what you're into you know and and then when you get a bit older you know 10 years down the line you maybe start to mellow and things become a little bit you start you know you start to feel like things come together a little bit more in in a more mature way does is that is that the same with arranging is that is that the same thing? wow that's a really cool uh, question i've never actually really thought about that I think it must be the same, you know. I think one of the reasons why I've been able to get asked back mm -hmm. is how much I'm able to, if I'm able to serve the music. Yeah. You know, I'll talk about being a team player, you know. Um, and it's interesting. I think we're able to serve the music and serve the product and serve the people the more that we're able to bring, like celebrate ourselves, uh -huh. but in a way of service. So it's not uh -huh. celebrating ourselves in a way of being a drama queen or having an out of control ego or yeah. being a very selfish person, but celebrating more like along the, you know, uh, the lines of know thyself, you know, yeah. uh, being able to get the best out of yourself in service to the, the the project and so yeah that's how i would answer that in terms of that, that's a really cool question so i've never seen myself as like a flashy arranger mm -hmm. but i just see it um in terms of well how much am i serving like some warped sense of my ego or how much am i yeah yeah or because i think I think if we just try to surrender to what we're perceiving as the music or the composition or the tune, that's where I think it becomes more easy for us. And I feel like I'm able to get out of um, my more small mindedness. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, as in, you don't feel like you've ever actually, there's ever been a point where you're like, Oh, I'm going to put this, I'm going to put this voice in because it's uh, actually quite hip. And uh, actually it's going to show off that I, I know what I'm doing. You, that's not something that's ever it, happened to you. Uh, not that's probably why, that's probably why you keep getting asked back to do stuff. <laughs> yeah. Not that I, I can recall. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm human, but I, I don't recall. Yeah. I just, most of the people that I, um, that I'm around, they can smell that from a million miles. Away. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it takes away from the music. You know, I have tons of insecurities. Yeah. And, you know, so, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah. All I'm gonna say is that I don't recall having done that, but, um, well, that is probably why you have a job, you know, <laughs> that's why, you know, I think that's, that's, that's the mark of a good arranger. You know, you don't try to, like you said, you don't try to over project yourself. You can, you do it in your own way. You know, you can project yourself without overstepping any, you know, you're yeah. always serving the music basically. Yeah. So 
it's an ongoing thing too. And, you know, it makes me think of a subject that is increasingly becoming apparent to me to be, (laughs) it should be a focal point, um, managing expectations. So it seems to me, obviously, different people struggle with different things, but I'm finding that the more that I manage my expectations um, of myself and like people around me and also help manage other people's expectations, it just helps so much. And so, you know, uh, I'm realizing that like, for instance, when I arrange for somebody um, I really need to manage all of our expectations because somebody might listen to something I did 10 years ago and then they hire me to arrange something on their project and they may think they're going to get something that sounds exactly like that, what I did 10 years ago. And I don't blame them if that's what they think, but I have learned to uh, be able to have certain conversations before I write a note that can help manage expectations. And it's, it's an ever-evolving dance, but that's how I would answer that is uh, thinking about managing expectations. Hmm. Very important. Hmm. So what are, your, what, what are you working on at the moment? Oh, actually, you have already sort of already answered that. You told me that you're you're working on your album, but what's you know what's what's the concept behind that? What's going on? Yeah. Oh, thanks for asking. So, Le Jardin Mystique, the Mystical Gardens, is the the name of my project, and it's just meant to empower people, basically. And at, as of right now, there's no vocals on it; it's just all instrumental. Um, but very likely. There will be some uh, just syllabic, uh, anthemic um, humming and on it. Um, maybe words on some stuff, but just like choral stuff. Um, but it's I've been down from 500 hours to roughly 48 hours right now. Uh, no exaggeration, and I've. It's just been my pet project. It's not been something that I've focused on um, with incredible consistent focus, but I started the first session 10 years ago. And the first session was a duet session with my buddy Austin Peralta. And uh, all of the music's just all my original music. And it's just a joy. It's meant just to be very diverse. And it's meant to be a bridge for us with ourselves, with our infinite selves. And so what I'm attempting to do is have every track on the album map be uh, a walk through a different mystical garden. And Mm -hmm. so all these mystical gardens are supposed to represent all the states of mind, all the different philosophies, all the different uh, aspects of life. Not so not just like the human centric um, not just for human beings, but just all all life through the multiverse. And so each track is, is trying to be not necessarily a different genre, but have its own intrinsic properties. And so where I'm coming from is I'm trying to say 
look at guys, we're a lot more special than we tend to give credit to. Uh, realize that you're carrying around immense jewels of incalculable worth. So first, know that. And then second, uh, give, it, give it a chance. So meaning let's honor ourselves. And obviously it takes a lot of balls. It takes a lot of courage to, and tenacity and, and honesty to like dig in to the reality of our own life. But where I'm coming from is uh, let's not give our power away as often as we do as human beings and let's honor our own wisdom. And I don't care um, what someone's IQ is. I don't care um, if they didn't graduate high school or if they um, went to college. All this stuff is beautiful. I mean, I do care to a degree. But what I'm saying is that I think I feel very strongly, strongly that each of us have incalculable worth, regardless of what we look like, regardless of where we come from. Regardless of anything, we, we all have a lot of worth. And the more time that we spend cultivating our singular, unique perspectives, the better. But I'm saying that it's still there and that potential is also there. And so this music is meant as basically an homage to that and meant to hopefully um, inspire people when they hear this music that they can realize, oh, wow, you know what? I just had this great idea. I just had this great. And I, w- I want to be um, a catalyst uh, for people in their lives with this music. So it's you're, earlier you were talking about how uh, you were, when you were talking about that jam with Hayat's Coyote, how it was, it was almost like you were saying that it, it defied genre. Hmm. And that's something that I try to do actually um, a lot. And, yeah. and this, this album is definitely a lot of that. So there's solo stuff on there, duo, all the way to orchestral stuff. Um, I haven't overdubbed any of the choral aspects yet, but many different instruments and many different genres. Um, but the, it's going to be in three volumes. Uh, it's on the Brain Feeder label. And the first volume is going to be two to three discs uh, released later this year. And um, yeah, it's been a joy. It's taken a while. It's taken a lot longer than I, I was expecting. Hmm. I, uh, at the moment, it's 48 hours long. Yes. Is that how long it's going to be? No. No, okay. Uh, all three volumes... <laughs> Okay, three volumes. Uh, yeah, and, and and when I add, I mean, roughly about eight uh, records. Um, okay. So. Well, I mean, that's. Yeah. So let's see. Each each record would be maybe about fifty minutes. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in total, closer to like four hundred minutes. Yeah. So I have yeah. to get forty-eight hours down to four hundred minutes. <laughs> Well, that's you know that's a good place to start from because usually it's the other way around. Usually you start with you know <laughs> you've got nothing and then you're like God, I've got to I've got to make my five minutes. What am I going to do? So that's good. That's uh, that's positive. Amazing. Yeah. Um, I had one more thing I wanted to ask you. 
but I've, but it's gone. And we have done like one hour, seven minutes. So maybe that's that's okay. But I really did have something that I really wanted to Can ask. I ask you some questions and maybe the question will come to you? Well, you can do if you want. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, tell me about your background. When did you uh, start playing? And uh, who is your biggest violin hero? I, I started violin when I was eight. And I started in school. And I was a bad student. And I always was a bad student, but I was, I had, uh, I was, you know, naturally quite, quite good, but I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't a, a virtuoso or I wasn't a prodigy at all, you know, but I think, I, you know, out of all the kids in the school, I excelled a bit, but I was a terrible student and I was a terrible student up until the age of about 17. But then for some reason, I had this real, because I was really bad. I, I didn't, didn't care about anything when I was a kid. I was like the ultra teenager. You know, I was just like chasing girls and just doing, like getting drunk at miles too early an age. I got in trouble all the time. And I did some really bad stuff. I wasn't, I was, I wasn't not bad stuff as in bad, bad stuff, but I was like, I, I got in trouble a lot, you know? And and my grandfather is a jazz clarinetist and he tried to teach me to play, actually to try and teach me. He taught me to play blues guitar. He taught me how to play like the three chords and, and, and taught me the blues scale. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. You know, tried to do that on the guitar. And after a while I was like, you know what? I'm actually not very good at the guitar and I can already play the violin. So why don't I try and put it on the violin? And my theory was so bad, it took me so long to work out. I never even thought about just doing it by ear to look, work out what, how to play the blue scale on the violin, but I did it in some really weird way. And after like, you know, a couple of hours, I was like, wow, I've worked out what the blue scale is on the violin. I wonder if anybody's ever done that. Probably not. But then my grandfather then was like, check out this, this Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli. He showed me it and I was like, amazing. He told me the story, Django was a gypsy, had only two working fingers. And I remember getting that story wrong and thinking Grappelli had two fingers. And I was like, what's going to happen there? And I remember then thinking, you know, that's, not, that's never going to happen for me. That guy can do it for two, with two fingers. I don't really know what's going on. How does this work? I don't get it. You know, trying to get the, I think I tried to find a book. I did get a book. Got the book by Matt Glazer, actually. If you know that, if you've seen that jazz violin book, I got that book. I was like, right, okay. My reading wasn't good enough to, you know, and also there's, I mean, you look at, you look at jazz solo written down and if you're not a very good reader, it's just going to look, and also, you know, you listen, you're listening to the record, you know, like, this, this isn't right. I don't get it. And, you know, I didn't really realize that it wasn't about getting a book. It wasn't about reading it. You know, you had to basically, you know, really get into it like that with your ears. But then I found jazz through, I think just through, just Carrying, you know, I listened to everything. I listened from when I was a kid. I went through big hip hop phase. I went through a big, uh, like a big blues phase because my grandfather was teaching me about blues. And then I went, you know, my grandfather was also jazz music. And I just started to listen more and more. And then suddenly it's like, actually, you know what? I'm going to try and play jazz violin. And you know, I went and studied on a jazz course. That's how it what happened for me. That's, yeah, that's my, that's, that's how, it, that's how it happened. And I also, I wasn't, you know, I didn't, when I went to get a, when I went to, I went to audition to go to study jazz in Leeds, which is one of the sort of oldest European establishments that's ever, that, that had a jazz course. It's a great, it's a great place. 
And I didn't get in the first time, really, because I was shit. I was I was really bad. I just didn't get. I still didn't really understand. I couldn't follow chords properly. I just used my ear. I didn't get in. But then I, I thought, you know, fuck this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna practice for a year and see how this goes. And I got some lessons with some jazz violinists who were traveling around. Tim Cliffus, if you know that guy, it's more of a Grappelli style dude. And yeah, and then I got in and. Then I'm now I'm just addicted and I can't stop thinking about it all the time. I wake up and that's all I think about. The violin. Fuck. You know, and I just I love it. That's all it's all it's my whole life. That's 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 how it happened to me. Um so quite different to you, I'd say. You know, I I didn't have, really have a very musical family. My immediate family weren't super musical, but my grandfather he was, but yeah. I still haven't thought of the uh, the question for you, man. I mean, you know what I was going to ask you? What was the what was the last what was the last uh, jazz solo you you tried to take down, transcribe on the violin? Oh, um, by a violinist? No, no, no. Just like or, when was the last time you were like, "What's going on there?" And you tried to. Work. Oh, I transcribe a lot. Right. I I love transcribing and then playing along with it. So. I, I do multiple ones um, at the same time, uh, so it's not necessarily one at a time. Uh, but the very and I have my phrase codex where sometimes I just do a, a lick and I transcribe ah. a lick. Um, but the well, as in you you you'll just take one lick and then you'll you'll try and you'll try and mess around with that. Try and find yeah, it. and I take it through all keys and yeah. uh, you know play with the metronome that's been like one of my greatest joys of my life has been yeah creating this phrase yeah, yeah. Codex. um it i have it up on my website for free actually um, oh, do you? yeah uh so i'm always revising it some of the spellings of the notes got uh completely fucked up <laughs> uh the last time so it's it's not bad right now but it's being improved right now uh, i'm on like version 14 uh it's it's many, it's like maybe like 1500 measures now. Right. Um, so anytime, it doesn't matter who it is. doesn't matter if they're known, well-known or not. doesn't yeah. matter what genre. Anytime I hear any phrase where I'm like, oh, you know what? That phrase is really unique to me. It's really speaking to me. It has like unique properties to it. Yeah. I transcribe it. And then when you play, a, it's one thing to have a beautiful lick. Um, and then sometimes I actually transcribe the harmony too. Yeah. Um, but some of these licks, they, they're just so beautiful. Um, even without the harmony, it's just such a beautiful phrase. And then it takes on other properties too. When you take that phrase up or down by, you know, half steps or whole steps or by minor thirds or by yeah. fourth or fifths. And so it's like, it's, it's just, it takes on yeah. other dimensions of beauty and uh emotion and meaning and it's been a really fun way for me to improve my ear mm. and to also spend time on my instruments yeah. um so sometimes it doesn't have to be a whole soul it's just like you know focus on on a lick and it's a beautiful way to um connect with some of these um people too because you you build like this serious love uh for these people that have inspired you yeah it's it's almost like just sitting down having a tea with them yeah yeah you know yeah man you connect with them and then if you're if you're playing the lick with them then it's 
it's also very interesting. But to answer your question, I guess uh, the main one I've been working on um, is interesting because it's actually both Herbie Hancock and the incredible violinist. You're in for a treat if you don't know this guy. Harry Lakovsky. Oh, man. Harry Lakovsky. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's that guy. There's There's been a lot of chat on this podcast about that guy. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, because... Because he's like a real interesting character, right, Lukowski? Yeah, so he didn't improvise any of his yeah. solos. You know, but some people, uh, this is this is the, you know, if you want to, <laughs> if you want to hear jazz violin uh, back and forth about this, you just want to. Well, I don't know which episodes, Matt Glazer maybe, or I don't know. But anyway, some people were saying he he did. Some people were saying he didn't. But actually, I think I, I've I've got to con- come to the conclusion. Yes, I don't think he did. There's like. People make people wrote it for him, right? People. Yeah, I I heard conclusively that he did not improvise. He did not want to improvise. Uh, yeah. You know who knows, but this. Uh, no, I'm with you. It's, it, I definitely, it's the case. I definitely it's heard the case. that. That uh, yeah, like Hank Jones uh, wrote out some of his solos, and it's different yeah. for different projects. But the one I've been transcribing was uh have you heard tell me a bedtime story from quincy jones um album uh i want to say the name of the album is sounds something like that we're right it's dumb yeah um, it's it's a classic one uh, i'm sure it's on well it's a quincy jones album but it's harry lukowski is so is, what it is is it's a quincy jones album and the song is called tell me a bedtime story so if you type in Quincy Jones, tell me a bedtime story. Yeah, that's what's going to come up. Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just writing it down for future reference. At the moment. Tell me a bedtime. Story. It's uh, it's a very cheesy sounding track. I mean, it's kind of like in the disco era. This is like the late '70s. Yeah. But it's made so incredibly well, in my opinion, that it's it's fantastic. Yeah. And you know, disco. I mean, it's not straight up disco music, but it's it's kind of influenced by some of those uh, genres and feelings, and it has a certain type of um, uh, veneer to the sound. Uh, but it's fantastic, and Herbie's the pianist on it, and so Herbie takes this incredibly epic, long solo, and Harry Lukowski doubles it in like three octaves with an orchestra of himself overdubbed. Whoa. And it's, it's what, in terms of like violin geekery, it's the, it's, it's, in, it's in the Holy grail, in my opinion. Uh, oh, for someone like myself, it's, it's in the Holy grail. That's uh, exciting. I'm, I'm going to slam that on as soon as we finish this, actually. Yeah. It's, it's, so. it's a joy. And you're going to hear yeah. like, Oh yeah, that is very cheesy but it's yeah yeah it's right wow so i've been i've been transcribing that and uh that's that's a solo that i'm going to master and i think i'm going to actually film that film me playing along with it because i mean herbie is one of my biggest influences on my life and um and harry is just i mean he so you know about him and he was uh one of the, the the top studio um concert masters and he was just in, incredible i mean his yeah. intonation and his sound is just incredible his feel 
Yeah, for sure. Like, and his jazz feel is is wicked. That Stringsville album, right? If people haven't listened to that, check that's it the out. one. He, yeah, I mean, he's so good. I remember, yeah. yeah, listening to it, and that was one of these things I'm listening to, it and I was like, God, I've got to work out what what I need. I need to work out that line. Fuck, I need to look, work out that line. Thinking I need to do this, this. but actually, he's, he's such a good violinist. Like he plays it so perfectly. But he also swings, and it's actually quite hard to believe that he doesn't improvise because it swings as it right. does. And I don't think I, most people are quite, especially non-violinists. I think violinists get it. They're like, no, yeah. I get it. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm fine with a, someone playing jazz, but they don't improvise. Yeah. But if you if you try if you play it, I know you know I've played it for to uh, to non non-violinists, and they're all a bit like, that's that's super weird. They like it, but they're like, that's weird. Like what's what? Why oh, that interesting. Happen? Yeah, I've I've definitely or people like laughing, you know, and you're like, no, it's fine. Like he's just a great classical violinist. He loved jazz, and he wanted yeah. to, you know, he wanted to do it, and that's fine. He wanted to do it in his own way. Yeah, yeah. I come back to feeling, you know. I think there's a type of uh, risk and danger in improvising that I think is delectable, and yeah. I think. We, we all have so much in common as human beings and courage to that is one thing that I think we all have or the struggle to establish more courage is one thing that we all have in common. And so there's a, a certain type of excitement that I think comes with risk. And it, I, I think people can hear that. And also has to do with vulnerability. Um, you know, being, we can be vulnerable in a way that's actually unsafe. Right. And then we can also be vulnerable in a way that's so responsible that we actually can be assured um, to a high degree, at least uh, a lot of safety. Um, and I think that's what I think we're yearning for. Um, it's, that's a lot of stuff that I think is uh, unconscious that I'm talking about. And so uh, another way to explain what the hell I'm talking about is calculated risk. So Miles Davis famous, famously uh, fired the, the amazing tenor saxophone player George Coleman yeah. um, in his uh, first um, 1960s quintet, Miles Davis' first version of the 60s quintet before Wayne Shorter came in. And he fired George Coleman because he was saying that he was paying everyone to practice on the bandstand. That was the type of of, you know, energy, uh, vulnerability, creativity, daringness that was very important to Miles. And that's what made that sound. And so George Coleman, uh, Miles accused George of practicing his solos in the hotel. Right. And so Miles, they're all staying in the same hotel and Miles could hear him practicing. And then he heard him playing some of those licks, you know, and... George is fantastic, but it's just a, it's just a, a, a type of, um, it's just taste, you know, and George doesn't have bad taste, but Miles just won that type of thing. So do you get what I'm talking about? Yeah, as in, well, sure, as in, I, I think, are you, are you saying that to some people that that absolute uh, vulnerability of a, of, a, of a completely new performance is, is more important? To some people, it isn't. Right. And so, and that's okay. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. And so it's just taste, you know, different. I don't think one taste is better than another. Um, you know, I know what I'm attracted to, you know, I want to be a better violinist and I want to be better at everything and I want to be more vulnerable. And to me, that's more exciting. Um, the more, uh, the more written out something is, um, the less interesting it is. Uh, but when it comes to Harry, he's so good at it. And the people that wrote out these solos are so good at it. Yeah. That, uh, those are some of my favorite jazz uh, violin recordings, period. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm so happy that it, it exists. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really interesting album. And it, am, am I right in thinking that that was, I'm sure someone, uh, this could not, this could be not, not true. It was quite early on in the overdubbing. In, in the world of overdubs. Yeah. So like I th someone told me that it was one of the first albums that had overdubbed, uh, you know, basically instruments overdub overdubbing, sort of multi-track. It was like very, it, it wasn't multi-track, was it? It was before, I don't know how they did it, but they, you might know. How did, how well, was it done? It had to have been early. It had to have been early because that, that Stringsville, I, I think that was in the 50s. Yeah, it was late 50s, I think. Mm. Yeah, it had it. There's definitely truth in that statement. Yeah, I don't know, like the first person you know to do it, yeah, but yeah. he was he was I think one of the first people to consistently do it with success. That I think is a true statement. To consistently do it, so because I I've really only heard Stringsville, but you, you know what other stuff should I check out of Harry Lukowski? Check out he, everything he's done. So I think Stringsville is uh the main one but um i don't know the the titles of he only has a couple other i think he has three um solo uh records that that i know of and stringsville is the one that's um the most celebrated sure what you know do you know do you know well you've you've already shed some light on the on the the what the recording that you just said but have you got are there any other albums that are that that feature him in that same way? Not that I know of, but now I'm going to go down the Harry Lukowski wormhole, which I have not really done before. Do you go to that uh, website called discogs.com? I think that might, is that, is that, is that like a, is that a lot of biographies and stuff or a place where you get no, the, dis the discogra discography? Uh, discogs.com is the, main website in the world where not only does it list extensively everything that that person uh, ever recorded, even like very small releases, right? Uh, it also is like a marketplace. And so it, it's a way for people to sell and, um, and buy uh, the, these albums, um, even right. if they're used. And I've, Previously, I would just use it as a way of researching, okay, well, what did this person do? Because, um, you know, I, I'm an audiophile too. I have almost okay. you know, 20,000 records and, you know, I love it. Um, but in this last year, I actually started using it to buy albums and right. wow, it was so fun. You can, you can find so many rare albums and for great prices too, uh, right. buy it. So you're in for... 
treat, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go hard. Go go on the go on the Harry Lukowski trail. Because yeah, yeah. it's fun. You know, you find people uh, that you didn't know about before, and you know, so so many of the greatest musicians are not famous. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it's it's great. You get to find out about work that they did, and then yeah. you can you can buy one of their albums for you know three dollars and ninety five cents, and you know, have yeah, it man. mailed to you within the week. It's 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 pretty special. Oh man, cool! I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna ch- oh, you know you you've sorted out the rest of my evening. <laughs> That's what you've done. Thank you so much for having me. Please have me back anytime you want. And oh, man. I- Look forward to checking out more of your stuff. Bravo yeah. on your amazing artistry. You have such a, a beautiful, refined sound and sense of swing. Well, uh, that's nice of you, man. Cool. Thank you. Really beautiful. Thanks. Hey, could you please tell me, if, you know, when you are coming to to do that Royal Albert Hall thing, if, if it's happening? If, yeah, um, I think they gave us a date, and I forget what that date is. Yeah. But let me know. It. Yeah, I will let you know in the future. Yeah, please do. So yeah, nice to chat to you. Have a great, you know, enjoy being a father and uh, chilling at home, going for walks. But yeah, Yeah. cool, man. Thanks so much. Yeah, honor me, man. Yeah, man. See you soon. Hey, so thanks so much for listening to the Jazz Violin Podcast. I've been Matt Holborn, and you've also been listening to Miguel Atwood Ferguson. That was a real pleasure to chat to him about his life, and his music and his feelings about music. Uh, do I have any news? Don't think so. Other than, you know, the usual, the Patreon thing, but you've already heard this probably once or twice before. If you want to give us a hand on Patreon, you can. Uh, www.patreon.com forward slash mattholborn.com or just don't and absolutely don't worry about it. Keep enjoying the podcasts. Uh, if you want to, you could actually give us a... I don't say this very often, but if you give us me a re review on iTunes that does wonders for I think for podcast stats I think again I don't really know I pretend to know but I don't really know as always I'm talking loads of words at the end it's like I'm trying to fill space that doesn't need to be filled thanks so much for listening Um, keep safe and I'll see you next month goodbye